Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. All right, let's dive into uh, the message this morning. I shouldn't have to change. Pull out your Crosswalk notes. You can open your Bible to Ruth chapter 1. If you have a a Bible app, you don't have to turn your cell phone off. You can keep it on. Open up your Bible app. And let's look at Ruth 1 together. Wow. These lies that we've been going through have been phenomenal. I know I've been rethinking some things in the relationships in my life, in my marriage, with my children each week as we've gone through these these nuclear lies that can get dropped like bombs into our relationships, into our marriages, in every relationship, every important relationship in our life. And this is one that I think has a major impact on our lives. I shouldn't have to change. When I When I got to thinking about all the times when we believe this lie, this nuclear lie, I shouldn't have to change. It got me to thinking about some of the the most ridiculous arguments that Julie, my wife, and I have gotten into. So I don't know if you guys can relate to this at all, but for example, just yesterday, um, I... I'm a modern husband, so about once a year, I kind of try to surprise Julie and do a little bit of laundry for her, you know, because that's what loving husbands do, at least on a once a year basis. So yesterday was my once a year, and, and so I, I grabbed the laundry, I sorted it all out, I got it going. Julie was off shopping, she didn't even know that I was doing this, I was feeling so good about myself, it was awesome. And then, and then she came back home, and she was... She was really appreciative to see that I had done this because, well, it's not a strange thing. I do it once a year, but, but you know, she was happy to see that that was the day yesterday. And so, um, anyway, <laughs> then I went into the closet where I had sorted the laundry. I, I had created like five or six nice little piles of laundry all perfectly sorted out with the colors over there and the whites. I even separated, like, here's the blues and, and here's the browns and reds. Like, I had it down. It was a system. And, and then when I went into the closet, I noticed that she had changed some of the items that I had put in some of the piles. Like, she had moved them around. Like, she had a better idea about what clothes belong in what piles than, than I did. And that was a little upsetting for me. Because um, here I was doing the laundry, and uh, she took it upon herself to rearrange the, the piles of laundry. Have you ever had that argument about what, what laundry, what colors belong in what piles when you're doing the laundry? Or how about this one? Maybe you've had this one. Have you ever had this one? <laughs> you know this one, right? Well, there's actually two of these. There's this one where, no, no, the roll goes on the, it goes like this so that you can just nicely and easily pull it out, makes it easy to grab. And then there's this. This is if you have a cat, right? <laughs> so that the cat can't quite get at it. And so you have this argument about what, whether or not, the, which way. And then here's the one at our house is, Have you ever gone into the bathroom and there's just that little cardboard thing on the, on the dispenser and sitting on top of the, not on the ring, sitting on top is the toilet paper. It takes one minute to change it. Come on. 
And then when you bring this up, the response is, well, if it only takes one minute, why don't you do it? Here's one I love. This happens at our house all the time. It used to happen more when the boys still lived with us, but it, it still happens. The other day we had, a, we had some guests over, and, and guests love to bring things. This is a box that all these holes used to be filled with cupcakes. And these cupcakes were awesome. They were tremendous. And, and when the company left, we brought the box over and said, here's some of your cup, take these home. And they said, no, we don't, we don't want the cupcakes. You keep them, which is what I was hoping they would say. And, <laughs> and um, so, so we kept the cupcakes. And I'm, I was like having dreams about these cupcakes at night. And, but I didn't want to eat the cupcake for breakfast. I thought, that's, that's not right. You, can't, you shouldn't eat a cupcake for breakfast. So I was saving it. For second breakfast. And, um, and so about 11 o'clock, I went out there to get my cupcake. There have been four or five of them left. And this is what I found. That's what I found. Have you ever had that discussion, that dialogue in your house? Yeah. All I have to do is hold this one up. You know this argument, right? Okay. How about this one? Now... I've had some great advice from trainers in my life, and I always love to seek advice from trainers. And one of, the, one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got from a trainer is, if you want to get your exercise in and you want to get it going first thing in the morning, what you do is you take your shoes and, and your workout gear, you select it the night before, and you, you put your shoes right beside the bed so it's there waiting for you when your feet flop over the edge of the bed. You can just put your gear and your shoes on, and you don't really have to wash yesterday's socks. You can just tuck them in there. They're fine. They're ready to go. But I've discovered that sometimes women don't want athletic shoes at right next to the bed. I, don't, I mean, I don't get it. It makes it so much easier. But there's a claim that these are, well, smelly. And, um, and so we've had this discussion about these belong on the rack in the closet. No, they belong beside the bed. And I have that on good advice from my trainer. No, I don't want those smelly shoes. But have you ever had arguments like how to put the clothes away, where to put the socks and all of that? All right, you get what I'm talking about. And how much of that really is a result of the idea, I shouldn't have to change. I shouldn't have to change. I shouldn't have to change where I put my shoes. I, I, I shouldn't have to change where I hide the cupcakes. I shouldn't have to change how I squeeze the toothpaste. It's a toothpaste tube. You can squeeze it anywhere you like. That's my, and I shouldn't have to change that. And I think so often, whether it's these little ridiculous arguments where at the end we go, why were we, why were we arguing about that again? Or bigger things, it really boils down to this lie, I shouldn't have to change. And the the question that I I want to ask you this morning is, have you ever believed that, that I I shouldn't have to change? And, And furthermore, have you ever just asked yourself the question, do I need to change for the sake of a relationship? What's what's your thought about that? Should you be changing? 
for the sake of a spouse or a child or a parent or a best friend or a coworker or a boss? And if the answer to that is yes, how much should you change and how much can you change before you lose yourself in what they want for you? How much is valid change? What kinds of things would God want us to change? Those are important questions when it comes to this topic of making changes for the purpose of a relationship. And I want you to ask yourself that this morning. Should I be changing for the sake of a relationship? And if so, how much and when? And, and in order to get to the bottom of this question and find the answer, God's answer to this question, I want to introduce you to a story from the book of Ruth. It's in chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. And I'm actually going to do something a little bit unusual this morning with this story. I'm going to, I'm going to start us up at the end of chapter 1, at the end of the initial story here of Ruth and Naomi and their sister-in-law, Orpah, her, Ruth's sister-in-law, Orpah. So there are these three people, and I want you to remember their names. There's Naomi, the mother-in-law. There's, there's Ruth, the daughter-in-law, the one daughter-in-law whose, whose uh, name is used in the book. And, uh, and then Orpah, the other daughter-in-law. And you see where Naomi is at in her heart at the very end of the chapter. And what has sort of driven everything that has preceded this verse in the chapter. When you look at Ruth chapter 1 verses 20 and 21. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. She's, she's in Israel. She's telling the townspeople this. Uh, her friends and neighbors, she's saying, I don't, don't call me by the name that you've always known me by. That is Naomi. Call me Mara instead because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Do you see where she's at? This is a woman who has gone through so much loss that she is simply resigned to suffer. And she has drawn the conclusion from from the grief that she's in that the Lord himself is against her. What's what's happened to Naomi to cause her to feel this way? Well, there had been a drought in the land of Israel which had driven Naomi, her, her husband and her sons, to a neighboring country, Moab, in search of food. They had gone there and uh, settled in there. And while they were there, her husband and her two sons died. She, she didn't have, now, now she didn't even have a home to live in, no townspeople, no, no neighbors that she really knew. And, and remember, back in the day, there, wasn't, there weren't a lot of ways for women to be able to support themselves natu- uh, uh, in, in the way that we have today because it, that just wasn't the, the culture. Men were there. Men were designated to take care of the women. And this could have been a very bad situation on top of, can you imagine losing your two boys and your husband? She's deeply grieving and she is convinced that the Lord is against her. And then she says, 
this is God. This is God striking at me. And I think this is important for us to hear because I think we've all had those stray thoughts cross our mind when we're in the midst of grief, when we're grieving a loss, when we're going through a really, really rough patch in our life, and we we begin in our guilt and our sin to think, God is punishing me. God is lashing out at me. And what we see with Naomi is that she's not living in God's grace. She's, She's let God's law predominate in her heart. She's let God's holiness be the main message to her mind. And while it's true, very true, that God is a holy and righteous God and wants us to live according to his commands, God makes it obvious over and over and over in the, in the Bible that in our hearts and minds, God wants the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to be the predominant feature that we live by, that we live by his mercy, that we live in his grace, and that we walk confidently through life. In fact, Romans 8.1 says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet Naomi has a deep sense of condemnation as she goes through life. She, she can't grab hold of a truth like that that I hope that you can grab hold of no matter how tough life is right now. When, when, when the devil starts to put that thought in your mind that you are living under God's condemnation, I want you to learn to quote Romans 8.1 back to, to him and say, I'm not under condemnation because the Bible, the good news of Jesus Christ tells me there is therefore now no condemnation for those who know Jesus Christ as their Savior. You might think, well, is it, is it true that God never punishes And I I want to teach you also to distinguish between punishment and discipline. Punishment is simply what's done to even the score. Some of you might have been following recently the trial in South Africa of Oscar Pistorius and, and how he was convicted of a crime, not convicted of premeditated murder, but he was convicted of a crime in that trial. And now the judge is going to go back And if you've ever watched Law and Order, you know that the symbol for justice is two scales. Punishment is all about balancing the scales, evening the score, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's what condemnation is about. It is about evening the score. And when God says there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, the reason there isn't is because all of God's condemnation has gone onto Jesus' shoulders on the cross for you. You will never, as a believer in Jesus Christ, be punished for your sins because Jesus was punished for them. And, and when some thought comes into your mind that I'm being punished for my sins, I want you to drive that thought out because Jesus was punished for your sins. That does not, however, mean that God won't at times discipline us. And discipline has quite different purpose from punishment. Punishment, as I said, is balancing the scales, evening the score. Discipline comes from a loving parent, a loving heavenly father in this case. And it's lovingly administered 
to help us get back on the right track again. And it, and it may, to be quite honest with you, feel just as painful as punishment. But the purpose is entirely different. It's, entire, it's entirely pointed to lovingly drawing you back to God. And so distinguish between those two. And understand that when you are going through those very rough times, if you're, if you're experiencing God's discipline, and so much of our suffering isn't even about that. Sometimes it's just simply someone else's sin that we're suffering from, not our own. A, a neighbor has done something sinful to us and hurt us. Or sometimes it's just the general web of sin in this fallen world that we live under and the weight of that. So it's difficult sometimes to even know why we get to this place where we want to say, don't call me, don't call me Jeff anymore, call me Mara, because my life is so bitter. And do you know what one of the results of being in this situation is? When, when our whole world is shaken up like that, and when you're feeling deep grief the way, Ruth, uh, the way Naomi is, you, you don't want other things to change. You don't want big things to change. It must have been very tough for Naomi to say, let's go back to Israel. You don't want little things to change because everything else is so shaky. You want to just stay where you're at, stay solid, stay, stay with your feet firmly planted on the ground and don't change a thing because you're afraid you're going to lose yourself. And here's what, I, here's what I want you to write down in that first fill-in. There's a common fear when we're going through really rough times. If I change, I'll lose myself. And when I'm afraid of losing myself, I resist change. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. Here's what I think motivated Naomi to consider change. For just a little while, for a little window peak, she saw God's love. She saw God's help. And as bitter as life was to her, Verse 6 is key. When Naomi heard in Moab, what? That the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. This is true of all of you and me. What drives true change in our life, what what gets us willing to, to make changes is not rules, is not justice, it's love. And when Naomi sees the hand of God's love working in Israel, she thinks, I want to go back and be with God's people again. The Lord has shown kindness to them and provided food for them. And I I want to say this to you. It's no different spiritually for us today. 
for, for us to be willing to change, we have to be firm in our own identity. We have to know firmly who we are. And the way that happens is from hearing Jesus say, I'm the bread of life. If, if you come to me, you're going to eat and always be satisfied. I'm the water of life. If you drink from me, you will never thirst again. And when we trust in Jesus, and when we, in quotation marks, eat and drink from him, meaning trust in him and believe in him, then we establish a firm identity for ourselves because as we say so often here at Crosswalk, our trust in Jesus and all that he did, the cross and in the empty tomb tells us who we are. Who are you? Do you know? You've heard it dozens of times. You are a dearly loved child of God bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is who you are. First John 3, 1. All because of Jesus' kindness. And that identity... As long as you trust in Jesus, he will not let you be shaken in it. And you can be certain about it. And you can't lose yourself. So for a little while, Naomi looks at this. And she starts heading back with her two daughters-in-law. And then I think she kind of loses sight of it again. Because she looks at her two daughters-in-law. And and she says something that I think had she realized what the true purpose of every relationship is, she wouldn't have said that. Do you know what the true purpose of every relationship in your life is? Your spouse, your children, your parents, your best friend, your, your other friends, your coworkers, the neighbors who live next to you on the street, do you know what the purpose, the singular purpose of every one of those relationships is? Now, if you've been taught by our culture what the purpose of every one of those relationships is, then you probably think very transactionally. The reason God has given me these relationships is so that I can get something from them. So that I can find something that I can take home from them. That's thinking transactionally. And if you ever give something to someone, it's like the Africans say, it's like putting up putting it up on a shelf to store it away for later. All you're thinking is I'm I'm helping this person so that I can get back help from them in the future. And I will tell you that often when when the compassions team does help people, the very first concern that they have is. How will we pay you back? And when that question comes out of their mouth, I know right away, and, and, and trust me, I've had that thought too, so I'm not judging. I'm just saying this is how we think. That's a person thinking transactionally. What do I owe you? Talked about that so many times. Jesus does not think transactionally. He thinks transformationally. Jesus does not look at the relationships that he has and think, what am I going to get from the people, but what can I give to the people? And why does, why does Jesus want to give to us? Because he wants to transform us. He wants to change us and make us ready so that we can be with him for an eternity in heaven. And that, brothers and sisters, that is the single 
purpose why God has given you every relationship in your life from the tightest, strongest relationships to the, to the, to the very smallest relationships. It is so that you can interact and love those people and give to those people and think transformationally so that, here it is, this is the big point, those people will be with you in heaven one day. Every relationship. Have you ever thought of it that way? Have you ever thought every relationship in my life is a gift from God that God has given me so that I can help this person be in heaven with me one day? And that's why I believe that Naomi misses it here. Because she starts thinking first about making a life for her daughters-in-law here instead of making any there. And her big concern that she voices here is, where can I find you a husband? Now, finding a husband is a wonderful thing. And of course, those are, those are big things, but they are big things for this life. And I believe that if Naomi had been thinking, what's the true purpose of, of the relationship that God has given me with my daughters-in-law, she would have been begging them to come and live where? Among the people of God. Why do I ask you to take the invite cards and give them to your neighbors? Because if God has placed those people on the street so that they can be called by you to live among the people of God, and that's what I believe the purpose of every relationship is, what the Bible teaches, that's what we need to be doing, and that's what Naomi needed to be doing. Because she lost herself, she got shaky. And without a solid identity, we resist change. Write that down. Without a solid identity, we resist change. And we get distracted. Here's the first thing that happens. We get distracted making a life for ourselves or others. It's interesting here because Naomi's a lot like many mothers. Most moms don't get so distracted building a life for themselves they get distracted building a life for everybody else. And they they run around and they scurry around and they become Martha's because they care so much about their husband and their children and their extended family. And they just want to do that. But it's all about this life. Just like it was for Martha. How are we going to serve the food? How are we going to clean the house? And we can easily forget about the life to come. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too, too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi is so buried in her loss and in her grief, she she cannot see the path ahead for her daughters-in-law. If right now, you are going through a similar rough patch in your life, this might be an issue for you too. If 
If you're struggling with your health, if you're struggling financially, if you are having a very difficult time in a key important relationship in your life, if, if your future seems very uncertain for whatever reason, if you've just experienced a big loss, someone near and dear to you, someone very important to you recently died, then it's easy to start doing what Naomi is doing here. And I can relate to this so well. I, I think that for me growing up, the one line that I heard, because I'm such an expert at this, that I heard from my grandma who lived with us, my mother, my aunt who lived next door, dear old Aunt Mildred, was, Jeffrey, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Like, I am, I am great at that. I lead seminars on how to feel sorry for yourself. If you want to sign up for my next seminar on how to, as an expert, feel sorry for yourself, just come forward after the service. We'll get it scheduled, and I can teach you how to be an expert person feeling sorry for yourself. I'm really, really good at it. And I've come to realize in the course of my life how right my grandma, my mom, and my aunt Mildred were. That there are times for grief. The Bible tells us, and it's healthy to grieve. Jesus wept at the loss of his friend Lazarus. But there, are also, there also comes a time where you have to say to yourself, that's enough grieving. That's enough thinking about the past for now. Sometimes I'll even do something kind of weird that you wouldn't even expect you could do, but I found it to be very effective with people who are deeply in grief over something. I will say, you need to put your grieving time on the schedule. Schedule it for 8 p.m. tonight. Give yourself an hour to just feel so sorry for yourself and grieve that loss and and think about how tough your life is. And then at 9 p.m., stop and go back to work. Give yourself time to pray about it, meditate upon it. Don't avoid it. Often when you do that, you're facing the brutal facts. But then set it aside and move forward. Will you write this down? Sometimes we resist change because we're so busy feeling sorry for ourselves. I want you to ask yourself, are you there? As they wept aloud again, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. Orpah, remember, is one of the two daughters-in-law. But, but Ruth clung to her, meaning Ruth clung to Naomi. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. What's Naomi's argument? Why aren't you thinking like your sister-in-law? You see, Orpah is doing the sensible thing. She's doing what everybody else would do. She's doing what I told her to do. And this is just, it's the generally accepted wisdom. This is what anybody would, Ruth, go back. And often we get sort of infected with that too, don't we? Instead of looking here for our guidance and, and, and asking the question and meditating on the, on the question, how does God want me to treat this situation? How does God want me to love this person? 
How does God want me to stick with this person? Does God want me to change some things for the sake of this relationship? We, instead of looking here, look out here. What would my trainer say that I should do with these shoes? Instead of, what does my wife want me to do? And then what would Jesus say about the relative importance of those two relationships? Is my relationship with my trainer really more important? Or maybe it's really my relationship with myself. I'm putting myself first on the wisdom of a trainer. How often do we not look around and go, I was, I was over at Joe's house the other day, and it was like this. And pretty much every home I go to, it's over the top. And so that's the way it should be. And, and that's a ridiculous example, but how often don't we just look out into the world, listen to what the opinion of the world is, the wisdom of the world, and then apply that to our lives because we're not ready to go against the flow. We're not ready to buck the trend. We're not ready to go with God instead of going with culture. Go back to your people, Ruth. So write this down. Sometimes we resist change because we're preoccupied thinking like everyone else. And here's where we get to the beauty of God working in the heart of Ruth. Man, But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, she says to Naomi. Where you stay, I will stay. We're going to hang together. We're going to do life together. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. You see what's driving this? Somewhere along the line, I don't know if it was because of her husband, Naomi's son, if it was because of the extended family, if it was because of of trips back to Israel, or, or what had happened somewhere along the line, Ruth had come to believe that Naomi's God is God. And she had come to believe that that God was merciful and kind and forgiving. And she wanted some more of that. And she wanted some more of the woman whose family had introduced her to that. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Will you underline those words, if even death separates you and me? I never noticed this before. Preparing for this message. Where is Naomi's mind? It's in eternity. She's going back with Naomi, not because she really thinks so much about Naomi needing her help in this life, but she does not want to be separated from Naomi, even by death itself, even in eternity. Her mind is right there. My job, the singular purpose, Ruth thinks, of my relationship with you, Naomi, is to make sure that the two of us are one day in heaven together. That is a beautiful line. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to love her and go with her, she stopped urging her. With a solid identity like Ruth had, she knew who she was in the Lord. 
she knew that she was a dearly loved child of God, bought with the blood of Christ. And so she invited change. And she became determined to love instead of resigned to suffer. What a beautiful picture this is. Now, do you remember the question that I asked at the beginning of the message? Here it was. Should I change for the sake of a relationship? And if I should change for the sake of of a relationship, how much should I change? You know what the answer is now? There's one core thing never to change. And that is who you are. But know clearly who you are. And this is who you are. A dearly loved child of God bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That is who you are. That is the one unchanging identity that through faith in Christ will sustain you and take you through your entire life. And whatever sacrifices you have to make in this life, whatever losses you have to experience in this life, whatever rough periods you have to go through, ups, downs, blows from the side, that identity will keep you resilient. Don't change that. Cling to Jesus. He's your Savior and he's your Lord. But here's the rest of it. If your goal with every relationship in your life is to see that person in heaven one day, what wouldn't you change if it would help you arrive at that goal? Look at Ruth. She, she's willing to walk away from her countrymen, from the place that she's loved and lived her whole life called home. She, she's willing to let everything else go for the sake of walking together in this relationship with Naomi so that one day not even death will separate them. That's what I want you to think about in your marriages in your friendships, with your parents. What, what wouldn't I change if it would help me reach the goal of being together with this person in heaven and not even letting death separate us? That's the answer to the whole question. How much you're going to change, if you're going to change, it's all, you got it. You know, we could talk about all these little specifics about what to change and not to change. But here's what I want to teach you today. Get way up here at the 30,000 foot level and remember why God gave you those relationships. And why God gave you every relationship from the biggest to the smallest in life is to bring that person to heaven with you through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 12 says it kind of beautifully. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. And that line has so much packed into it. In view of God's mercy. I'll come back to it in a second. I urge you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What what do you need to change? What do you need to give up? Do it. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Your sacrifices and your changes become worship of God. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't don't wonder what everybody else is thinking. Don't get lost in your grief like some some people do. Don't, 
get so busy making a life for yourself here. That's what the world does. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Get in here and get your mind renewed. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do what Naomi, for a little while, forgot to do. Live in the grace of Jesus Christ. Live in view of God's mercy. What changes was Jesus willing to make for the sake of his relationship with you? Was he ready, true God, to take on human flesh for you and become a true man? Was Jesus ready and willing to leave his eternal throne in heaven and walk in this sin-filled sewer of a world that his must have grossly repulsed his holiness? Imagine if I asked you to live for 33 years in a sewer. Was Jesus willing to take every harsh word of the Pharisees, every blow of the Roman soldiers? Was Jesus willing to have a crown of thorns pressed down on his head, nails driven through his hands, be crucified for something he was completely innocent of? Was Jesus willing to undergo all those changes for you? And for only one reason, so that even death will not separate you from him, so that you can be with him in eternal life. He underwent all those changes for you. Write this down. Jesus lets us know that life is all about change. And by keeping his mercy in view, our sacrifices turn into worship. They turn into a way that we can say, in other words, thank you, Jesus. You first loved me. You first made huge changes so that we could be together in heaven one day. Now help me make those changes for the ones you've placed around me and consider every sacrifice I make an act of thanksgiving and worship to you. You see this verse? I hope you'll take it home with you and put it in your heart and mind. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if you need a very practical picture of what that looks like, just think about Ruth. This, this beautiful young woman who was transformed in her mind by the love of Jesus and reflected that love to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then maybe you want to read the rest of the book of Ruth and see how that panned out for her. Bottom line, I keep God's mercy in mind. This gives me the power to change and not conform to the pattern of this world. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you so much that, that you sent your son, Jesus, that he willingly underwent massive changes for the sake of his relationship with us, to call us back out of sin, to reconcile us to you, so that we could be changed and transformed in our hearts and minds. Lord, we deserve none of this. And we know that we resist change. We especially resist the change of, of becoming spiritually alive through faith in your son, Jesus. We, we don't naturally want any of that because we are dead, blind enemies of yours. 
But you keep coming after us in your relentless love. You keep showing us your mercy and forgiveness. And you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit working in the word to to come to you and see you and live our lives in view of your mercy. And the Lord, as we go out of here, help us to rethink, I shouldn't have to change. Help us to rethink that with remembering what the true goal of every relationship in our lives is, to bring people to heaven with us so that even death will not separate us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to CrosswalkPhoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue Baseline on Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. You know, in life, we can sometimes just get buried in the little details. And it's so important that we have the ability to, to pull ourselves back up to that 30,000-foot level and just ask ourselves, why? Why has God put this person in my life? And I want you to think like Ruth. I want this person to be with me past death. I want this person to be with me in heaven. And one thing I want to say to you, if you're sitting here today and, and thinking to yourself with a little bit of regret, man, I missed it with that person. And, and maybe you're feeling guilt, like you, you, there was a person in your life and you feel like maybe you've lost that opportunity to go back like Ruth and, or Naomi and Orpah. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Get back to the cross. Get back to the empty tomb. You have a completely fresh start. Wash with the blood of Jesus and go forward remembering what every relationship was given to you for. To bring those people to heaven with you. Let me send you out into your week with the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look on you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen.